This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, October 12th, the Some Kids Are Jerks edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm an editor at Slate and the father of Eliza, age six, and Leo, who's three. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I am a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 16 years old, Teddy, who is 14 years old, and my stepdaughter, Lily, who is 17 years old. Carvel Wallace can't be with us this week. He'll be back next time. Today on our show... We're going to be talking to the writer Alyssa Strauss about one million frozen embryos that nobody knows what to do with, including her own. Plus, we have a question from a listener whose kids hate their parents' friends' kids. And as always, we will have triumphs and fails. We will have recommendations. On Slate Plus, you'll get to hear a little bit more about Rebecca's children's personal lives. (laughs) Uh, But first off triumphs and fails. Rebecca, what do you have for us? I have what might be a triumph in progress, but it's one of those things where even the process is a triumph. So even if it turns out to be a fail, it feels good today. So I'm going to call it a triumph. Um, A couple weeks ago, I alluded vaguely to the shifting dynamics between uh, my ex-husband and I, the kid's dad and I. And uh, we have been in a really good place lately. Like our co-parenting groove is definitely like good. And we have been really communicative and making a lot of decisions together and helping each other out and being really flexible. And it's just been really great. And part of this has played out around Teddy and his ADHD medication, which I think I've mentioned in an earlier podcast last year, he decided to stop taking it at the beginning of his eighth grade year. And he proceeded to have an outstanding year socially and an abysmal year academically. And He has been expressing interest in trying medication again, and 
just for a little bit of background, there used to be a lot of adversarial relations between my ex-husband and I around this whole thing about Teddy having ADHD and medication. We just see it very differently or have seen it very differently in the past. And it's been uh, a point of contention over the years where we have differing points of view on it. And it it just feels unnecessarily stressful. And um, what's happening now, because things have gotten so much better between us lately, is that we're able to talk about Teddy and his issues. And because we're communicating about Teddy's homework and we're, we work together to find Teddy like a homework tutor and we're sort of both in it and texting each other and talk, talking to other phone about Teddy. Um, when Teddy expressed this interest, we took him to the doctor together. And for the first time in the history of our post-divorced life, we both just sat there as a team together in chairs and just let the doctor talk to Teddy and contributed very little to the conversation and didn't neither one of us feel the need to state our point of view or our case or interject, you know, what we've observed or what we think should happen. And really, it was just Teddy talking to the doctor on his own. And when he would ask us questions, we would answer them. And as a result of that, Teddy made the decision to try something new. He's just started it. So not sure how quiet it's going to go. But um, it feels like a parenting triumph insofar as like our stuff finally is not in the way of this problem. So we may or may not reach a solution, but it just felt a whole lot better, that's for sure, than it used to. So that's my triumph for the week. That is a great and significant triumph. I have a triumph that's also triumphant, and yet it's on the other end of the spectrum in terms of significance and uh, depth. Um, Here's my triumph. We went away for the weekend. Uh, We stayed with my in-laws. We had a great time. And at one point, my father-in-law took the kids to the toy store, which is something that he always likes to do. And and it's their main association with him is like, are we going to see Pops? And is he going to take us to the toy store? And the answer is always (laughs) yes. So we went to to Toys R Us. They had never been in a Toys R Us. They really like Toys R Us, it turns out. Um, And they each got to pick a toy and... and, uh, one of the things, one of the problems that I have with contemporary toys, or at least with my children's relationship to contemporary toys or, or, or something, uh, is that if you take a kid to a toy store and, and allow them to choose a toy, what they actually are choosing is a character from a TV show on a box. Like, mm-hmm. that's the way they pick. They, like, see the guy, and it's, like, this time it's Paw Patrol, and, like, I'm going to get this Paw Patrol toy. It's nothing to do with the, the playability or, or, or the experience that they're going to have with the toy. It's only, like, they are responding to these characters that they enjoy watching in on TV shows. Nothing wrong with watching TV shows. Different from playing with toys. I wish we could get all the characters off the toys and let the toys be the toys and, and, and keep the TV characters confined to their TV shows where they... Uh, excel uh, at being uh, (laughs) pups who are going to save the day or whatever it is. In any case, um, Leo is at this point, I guess, what we learned from this weekend is that Paw Patrol has been uh, supplanted in his affections by a show called PJ Masks, which is about three children who put on their pajamas and become superheroes because nighttime is the right time to fight crime. Uh, (laughs) I I don't quite get the premise, but like I assume it's to do with like making going to bed fun is supposed to be the value of this show. Um, In any case, uh, what we came out of the toy store with for for Leo was a huge box with the PJ Masks guys on it. And it has one of them in a car and the bad guys in a car and they're racing around. And we get it home and it's one of those toys that consists of like 327 differently shaped pieces of plastic that then you're going to like put together into something that is then going to be a thing. 
Um, the triumph here is that I was able to put the 327 pieces of plastic together. I was able to extract them from the packaging and as assemble them into the proper <laughs> configuration before he had completely lost interest in the toy entirely and the whole thing had just become like dead junk. Um, and, and when I got it assembled, then it turns out that like you press down on the stopper and the PJ Masks guy in his car goes around a loop and then busts through the doors of the museum to stop Night Ninja from robbing the museum or whatever. So, um, it, it it's one of those toys that has only like, there's only one play mode. Like you can only do exactly one thing with it, but the one thing is pretty cool. And he quite enjoyed doing the one thing like about a hundred times and then he took the little guy in his car to bed with him. So it was in the end a successful toy, even though like on any objective criteria, by any objective criteria, uh, it's just a terrible toy. That That's my triumph is putting that toy by, together. By any objective criteria, it's a terrible toy. Do you know yeah. what the word objective means? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> All too well. <laughs> it, is, it is funny how we like the things that we want our kids to want versus yeah. the things they actually want. Totally different because children have terrible taste and enjoy garbage. Yes, they do. They do. That's yeah. why Captain Crunch is a character that exists in the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, well, congratulations on um, moving forward in a healthy way uh, with your kid's medical situation. And um, I will accept all of your plaudits for successfully putting together a uh, PJ Masks adventure set. <laughs> I want to hear more about nighttime being the right time to fight crime, frankly. Yes. I'm going to check this out myself. <laughs> it's sort of catchy, right? Totally catchy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, before we move on, let's do the business. First, I urge you to check out one of Slate's other podcasts, Working, hosted by Jacob Brogan. Working is the show about what people do all day. It consists of interviews with people from all walks of life about their work life. Recent seasons have looked at what it's like to work in Detroit, at the White House, in the beauty industry. This season, they're talking to the creators of DC's Batman comic book about how they write scripts, turn them into drawings, turn those drawings into finished comics. If you like comics or if you're just curious about how the sausage gets made, check out working at slate.com slash working or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I want to tell you about a really cool event that Slate is putting on in New York City on the 8th of November. It's called The People vs. Trump Year One. It features Slate writers Jamel Bowie, Isaac Chotner, Dahlia Lithwick, our editor Julia Turner, and more. It's a series of one-on-one -on -one conversations with people at the forefront of politics, media, the law, and activism, comparing notes on the lessons, challenges, victories, and defeats that they've seen over the past year and what they expect going forward. That's on November 8th at 7.30 p.m. at the New School Auditorium in New York. Uh, you can get tickets and information at slate.com slash live. Today on Slate Plus, Slate Plus members will be hearing more about what goes on in the personal lives of Rebecca Lavoie's teenage children. If that intrigues you or if you would just like to get your podcasts free of ads, you should sign up for Slate Plus. If you like this podcast and you find it valuable, joining Slate Plus is a great way to support us. 
Uh, for just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing this show and the other great Slate podcasts. And of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of your favorite shows and a ton of other great benefits, including extra segments every week, some but not all of which focus on Rebecca's intimate details of her personal life. So if you <laughs> would like to support Mom and Dad are Fighting, go to slate.com slash plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, moving on. We are pleased to welcome to the show now Alyssa Strauss, a freelance writer who has written for the New York Times, for Slate, for a variety of other places. She's here to talk to us about a piece that's running in Elle magazine called The Leftover Embryo. Uh, it's about the situation that she and her husband found themselves in and, and that thousands and thousands of other Americans find themselves in uh, when they go through IVF and end up with more viable embryos than they need to conceive the number of children that they want. Um, Alyssa, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into this situation? Sure. So um, I had what they call secondary unexplained infertility, which is a diagnosis that tells you absolutely nothing. Uh, I have one son who's four and a half when I wanted to have another son or another child who now turns out is a six month uh, boy. We had a really hard time getting pregnant. Eventually we turned to IVF. Uh, in the end, we ended up with our son and three other embryos that had genetic screening. So we know in fact that they're healthy embryos and they are currently in the freezer in New York city. And we are currently in our new home in Oakland, California. Hmm. And this is something that happens all the time in in uh, IVF processes, but that isn't talked about very much. That you end up with more embryos than you wind up using. What are you supposed to do there? Right. Well, you just kind of are stuck figuring it out on your own. That's you know a, a problem that a lot of us who go through this you know end up facing when you go through IVF. Nobody really wants to talk about, you know, oh, you might have extra embryos at the end. You do sign papers saying that if we get divorced or one of us dies, like this is, you know, what should happen with our embryos. But it's in, you know, a mountain of paperwork that you have five minutes to sign before you have to get your like 900th, you know, vaginal ultrasound that month. So it's not something you're really thinking about. And frankly, if the clinic would sit down and say, you, hey, you know, just so you know, at the end of this process, you might have extra embryos and it might be really hard. You wouldn't know what to do with that information. You know, everyone's kind of operating with tunnel vision. So I think, you know, the first thing that I think that, you know, the part of the problem here is that really it's something you're totally unprepared for. And then all of a sudden you have your child and you get a bill and you say, oh, wait, we have three other embryos or however many other embryos. What are we going to do with them? And if you if you don't make a decision, then what happens to those embryos? They sit in storage and you pay, you know, approximately or, or you pay on average just you know, $750 a year. Our embryos are in a Tony, New York City. So ours cost $1,100 a year to store. And um, the vast majority of people with frozen embryos take that indecision route. The vast majority of people just don't want to think about it and they keep paying the fees over the years. And if you decided you don't want to pay rental on freezer space in New York City, uh, what else could you do with them? So you're, you know, three choices really with embryo disposition, which is the technical term for what am I going to do with my frozen embryos, is basically destroy, donate, or use. So 
Under the destroy category, there's three options. You either can just tell the lab to destroy them, very simple. You can do something called a compassionate transfer, which is actually a procedure in which they put the embryo inside a woman during a time of the month where she has very little chance of getting pregnant. And you know, some religious people think that's the best way to get rid of their embryos. And then another option is some people actually have a ceremony where they you know, take the little vial of the tiny little speck of a 120 cells and find some meaningful way to dispose of them. The second category is donate, and you can either donate your embryos to research or to another couple. The third category is use them to have another child. And, and if you've decided that you don't want to have another child, uh, then your options are getting rid of the embryo either in, in one of these more ceremonial ways or, or just by throwing it out or donating it for some use. Are there, are there scientific purposes where your embryos might be valuable in stem cell research maybe? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they would be of enormous value to stem cell researchers. Unfortunately, the, you know, you have this, you have 1 million embryos sitting on ice right now, and there's very little access to them for stem cell researchers because of all the red tape in this country um, surrounding that type of research. There's, you know, there's a lot of laws limiting the kind of research that can be done. And, um, so when, you know, when I had heard of the research option, I had imagined like, oh, you know, they'll go to stem cell research and it'll be so wonderful. And they're like, cure Alzheimer's and hooray, you know, for my embryos, what a nice, you know, tidy end to this story. And as I learned when I kind of pressed my clinic and then poked around while reporting this story is that the majority of them essentially go to like quality control for the fertility clinics. And that's its own beautiful thing. They still go to like creating more life because they might help train a technician who will then go on to help, you know, another couple have a child. Uh, but it is kind of frustrating, you know, when you start looking into that aspect of it and see this huge potential for um, research and for, you know, scientific progress and the research on people dealing with this embryo disposition issues suggest that like when they know that their embryos are going towards something really wonderful, like, you know, curing cancer, curing Alzheimer's, it really gives them a lot of peace of mind. So it's a real shame that we just can't do that because of you know, all these laws limiting stem cell research. You talked about, you know, a lot, the the large numbers of people who are deciding not to decide and just paying these fees. Right. Why is it so hard to decide? Like, is this because you are, you know, projecting something onto these embryos? Like, can you just explain what that indecision is, is how that's com composed? Yeah. And, you know, it's, and I'm glad you're asking that because I think we're all surprised with it. You know, now I've, I've heard from so many people since I wrote this story and no one really expects it to be difficult. No one, you know, no one sees this coming. And until you kind of go through it, you're like, oh, wait. Um, so part of it is that once you go through the process and, it, you know, so much part of like infertility is you just see it, it really gets you into like the gradualist approach towards the creation of life. It's, um, you know, you it's everything step by step, step by step towards a baby. So getting these embryos, particularly in my case, I don't just have embryos, but I have embryos that have been screened. So like getting, you know, healthy embryos is for you, you in the context that you've been operating in for so long when you go through infertility treatment is like pretty far, you know, on the board game towards, you know, baby. And um so it's really hard to kind of reverse course and stop seeing them 
as potential children. I think that's, you know, that's the big problem. The other problem is just that nobody's talking about it. Uh, again, you know, clinics don't really have any kind of help for this. You know, at least I think like when they send you the bill, they might send you just some paperwork that says like, here, Hey, this might be hard. And here's some tips and here's some research and here's someone you could talk to. Um, and then the other problem is this is not something that anyone would really welcome a discussion on in infertility support groups. You know, the, most of the people in those groups are just, you know, they want a child more than anything. And to have this like little subset say like, Hey, we have this big problem. We have all these extra children, like our potential children, you know, it's, it's not wanted there. So I think, you know, that's, that's a big reason. Like there's just no framework to think about it. There's no support emotionally. There's no, you know, really facts that you can say like, oh, here's, I mean, there, there are some lists out there, of course, particularly on Resolve, the National Infertility Association, they have, you know, a list of here are your embryo disposition options. But again, you know, the conversation beyond that's really hard to find. Hmm. If you're not going to use them, then the only thing that would keep you from, you know, donating them for quality control at the lab or, or destroying them, the only thing that keeps you paying the monthly or the annual fee on the freezers is the sense that these embryos have some sort of special value beyond their existence as a collection of cells of your genetic material, right? Right. Right. Is, the, is there part of you that wishes you could be sort of coldly rational about them in that way? Yes, absolutely. And I expected myself to be. And I wrote this whole article and, you know, and arrived at a decision. But somehow, I, you know, I started hearing from all these people going through it and it like opened it up again. Um, so, yeah, that would be, and I, you know, I, and I, I think I've, I, I keep, I try to move myself back towards that place, but I've surprised myself how you know, I, I don't see them with like, just like clear rationalist eyes and I can't help, but like, you know, if I let my mind drift there, I can feel like that emotional attachment, attachment stirring up within me. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of, um, I mean, you're, you're talking about future you, right? Like you don't know what right. future you might think about the decision you make around this today. And I think about this when, you know, reading your piece, it reminds me of the conversation I had with my husband about him maybe getting a vasectomy. And I was actually the one who ultimately nixed it because I'm like, what if I die in a plane crash and you want to you want to get remarried and you decide you want to have more kids? And we're at the point now where it's like a little bit past that. I still feel like I don't want to make decisions for future me. And that's kind of what you're doing. It's what it might feel like you're doing when you're making this decision about these embryos, right? Absolutely. And so my problem is I don't, right. I, I, I feel bad making a decision like for future me and saying like, Oh, you know, you think two kids is what you want now, but maybe that will change. <laughs> I've, I've changed. I used to really like the Dave Matthews band. Like there are many surprises <laughs> you know, in store for me in my life. Um, so there's that, but also I'm not someone who can compartmentalize. I lack that ability. Uh, and it's not, a wonderful thing. Sometimes it comes in handy, but I'm not someone who can just have them pay the bill and not think about it. Like if they're there, they're always a question that demands an answer for me. So that's why I do feel like I, you know, I needed to come up with an answer now and kind of move past this. So what's the answer that you and your husband came up with? The answer is donate them to research. We, at at the hospital where they are in New York City, they do do some stem cell research. It's a big academic institution. So we are able to flag them for stem cell research. 
And, but I was told by someone working in the embryology department there that there's a small chance that they will actually be used for that. So what we're going to do is flag them for stem cell research and say, if that doesn't work out in a couple of years to use them for, you know, this more quality console, quality control uh, stuff in the lab. Oh, so you, you have the option to hold them until there's a stem cell research slot for them if that happens? That's essentially what they do, but it sounded a little bit like, oh, but you know, they, they will hold them until something comes up where they could be useful. But a lot of them end up sitting for years, you said, and then if if they sit for long enough, then they just destroy them anyway. So I'm going to, you know, put we're putting those instructions in and uh, we hope that they hold to it. Giving them a chance to do something that you would like them to do, basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, you, you you put so much effort in these, you invest a lot of time, you know, <laughs> skin, you know, all the needles you poke yourself with uh, yeah. emotions, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's a big project making one of these uh, IVF babies. So yeah, it just would feel really good after all this, not to mention, you know, the money invested in them, not to mention also, again, that we have these healthy embryos, which could be, you know, in some ways even more useful for researchers. It, would, it just would give us a lot of peace of mind to know, right, that they like, kind of entered into the cycle of life in some fashion. Do you know the gender of the embryos? I do. And do you ever think of them as gendered or talk about them with like gendered pronouns? I don't, uh, but like that was a very conscious decision on my behalf. Hmm. You know, it's, it's easy to, and it just kind of pulls you further down the line as seeing, you know, seeing them or seeing the tiny you or tiny your husband, uh, Roam, another one of us, you know, roaming the planet. Uh, but yeah, I, I've, I've, you know, actively resist going there. It's so layered because, you know, in a clinical way, you could say, you know, it'd also be really, really hard if you guys moved out west and had a big storage unit in New York that was full of your family heirlooms and beloved, you know, mid-century modern furniture or whatever, right? And right. that would also be difficult. And then you add the layer of you know, the feelings you had when you were going through this process and the hope you had. And there's like a manifestation of that hope in these embryos. And then there's also the future you conversation. But then at the same time, you also know, you know, how you feel about this group of cells, you know, clinically and on top of it. I mean, the, the layers of this decision are maybe more complex than any other layered decision that I've heard about. This is really, really interesting. And it's got to be really tough. Yeah, it is. And, you know, part of the problem is that the ethical framework and legal framework surrounding embryos hasn't really caught up to the reality of the fact that there are 1 million plus frozen embryos in the United States right now. I spoke to legal scholars and ethicists for the story, and, you know, they're still not quite sure what to make of them. I mean, the closest thing we have to a federal uh, legal definition of embryos is their amorphous is that they are an amorphous class. Uh, you know, ethicists kind of are still wrestling with it. They're, they acknowledge that they do have some moral status, but they're not, you know, people, they're not life. Of course, the pro-life movement does, you know, see them as life, but most ethicists today don't. Um, so there's just, we just totally, you know, you're just kind of going through this blind and this, this technology is moving so quickly. And you also write too in your article about not wanting to wade into those um, debate waters. Like people don't talk about it because they don't want to have a pro-life or pro-choice conversation when they're talking about 
this. You know, it's just like a lot of other conversations. It's it's nuanced and there are feelings out there that people try to put on you when you already are grappling with your own, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's, you know, it's sad in the way the degree that to the degree that, you know, that the debate about abortion has kind of sucked the air out of, you know, so many conversations that need to be happening surrounding reproductive health and reproductive choices. And this is definitely one of those, you know, I don't, me thinking that these embryos have meaning does not by any means make me feel as though I'm capitulating and saying, okay, wait, you guys are right. These are, you know, this is life. Like let's, you know, blow the whistle. Abortion should be over. Like, but they still, there, there's something, you know, and I, again, I think it's hard to go through this whole experience when you go through, you know, go through infertility treatment and not have some feeling towards this kind of gradualist approach to like how life, you know, comes into being. Alyssa Strauss, thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, Alyssa Strauss is a freelance writer. She's written for Slate, The New York Times, other places. The article, The Leftover Embryo Crisis, appeared in L. I'll post a link to it on our Facebook page and our show page. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, time now to take a question from a listener. If you have a question that you would like us to address, uh, give us a call at 424-255-7833. Or as this listener did, you can leave it as a message on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. It's being read by our producer, Benjamin Frisch. I have a question about what we should force our kids to do for the sake of our own socializing priorities. For about 10 years, we've been spending the same holiday weekend with very generous friends with whom we have a great time. In some years, another family we're also friends with has joined us. However, this other family has three kids that are all very challenging for different reasons. The last couple of years, our kids have begged and pleaded with us not to go when it became clear that the other family would be there. We've tried to explain that dealing with difficult people is a part of life, and we've encouraged them to at least be friendly, yet every time the weekend ends with the tears of our unhappy kids. So my question is, should we keep going? Should we not go if we know the other family will be there? Should we allow other people's kids to dictate how we spend our holidays? (laughs) I love this question so much, Gabe. I love it. Uh, Have you been in this situation? 
I'm in the situation right now. Um, my my husband and I have uh, our couple friends. We have a few different couple friends that we're really close with. But our closest couple friends of the last couple of years have two kids that are the same age. Uh, their older daughter is the same age as my stepdaughter, Lily, and she's also close in age to my son, Henry. And their younger son is Teddy's age and is in Teddy's grade and goes to Teddy's school. And the younger son and Teddy, like... Don't like each other right now. And it's real weird because we uh, love spending time together as adults. And we have like in the past had these really fun and epic like family game nights where we all get together and play, you know, Jackbox TV or we play, you know, apples to apples or whatever. And in the last few months, it's become this like dance of whether or not like we can get together because how is this kid going to be and how is Teddy going to be and are they cool with us being together? And uh, and it, it what makes it extra awkward is that, you know, I spend a lot of time with the parents independently of our family time. Like we go for walks together, we go out to drinks together or whatever. And like when this part of the conversation comes up, it gets really awkward because you heard what this questioner said. Uh, he or she said, um, should we let other people's kids dictate our good time? And so she's definitely saying, like, it's the other people's kids' fault, right? And you kind of can't help but feel that way, even though I know this is also partially my kid's fault for just not being able to, like, compartmentalize and just being like, hey, this is traditionally been a really good time let me try to make the best of it whatever like he can't so it ends up not being a good time anymore uh when we are forcing it to happen so what we've done is basically done something in the middle where we if we want to get together as you know whole families we ask the two younger kids like is this cool with you and is this cool with you and then the mom and i have a confab and it's like yeah we want to get together with you guys but he's not really into seeing teddy right now or it'll be the other way and we'll just figure it out like we've agreed to just put it out there that our kids are having this issue and work around it um but it has definitely shifted the dynamic a little bit because we used to talk about like going on vacation together <laughs> like doing all these things together and we don't talk about that stuff as much anymore it really bums me out because i love these people so much. So I don't know for this, for advice, I would say um, it sounds like it's, you know, this, this, this questioner talked about like this really great time that they've been having for all these years. It sounds like it's not such a great time when this dynamic is in play. So I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to say not those people's kids suck, so I don't want to be with them. But you know, our kids and so-and-so's kids, they seem to clash a little bit. So maybe we should make plans to get together when the dynamic can be a little bit cleaner or maybe wait till they get a little a little bit older before we all get together. And maybe we can just enjoy each other's company for now when we don't have that dynamic in play because it's less fun for us as adults. Like make it about you. And that way you're not explicitly saying those people's kids suck, which isn't something that you should say really out loud. Um, to someone to whom it might get back to. So anyway, that's the best I can do. But I, I feel for th this person because it sucks. It sucks when your good time is ruined by your kids not getting along with other kids. It totally sucks. It sounds like in your case, though, the, the um, hostility between Teddy and his opposite number in this other family came about in the context of like there was a while when everyone was basically getting along, right? Like these were sort of... Mm. No, they, it was never they good. were. They, they, never they would. Other. They were never BFFs. Yeah. They would. They could tolerate. But now, you know, when the kids get older, like yeah. school dynamics come home with them, and it's yeah. you know. So, 
you can um, like Henry and their older daughter, they don't socialize. You know, they, they actually go to two different schools now, but they don't socialize, but they get along really well. Yes, they don't socialize in their school environment. But when they're together in this situation, like they get along super well. And this these other two kids just it's not it's just not that way. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, and uh, it's weird. It's it's really uncomfortable um, for everyone, and I I think that it's easy for me just to sort of be the one who's been like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that Teddy just can't deal with this, whatever, whatever. But I've really come to realize it's both of them. They're both contributing to this dynamic, and it's okay for us adults to be like, you know what? It's we'll have more fun tonight if we don't put them in the situation. Luckily, our kids are old enough where I can just leave Teddy home and go to their house without him. Um, but I'm, I don't, it doesn't sound like this questioner is quite in that situation yet. Yeah, I, I, I'm struck by the way uh, Helen described it in her letter. It, it, she's very clear, like these three kids from this other family are just difficult kids for different reasons, but like there's something intrinsic about these kids. And some kids just really are difficult. Like maybe yeah. I'm, you know, let's stipulate that her read on the situation is basically right, and her kids are ordinary, perfectly nice kids, and then the, these three kids are assholes. And if that's the case, it's kind of uncool to make your kids spend an entire weekend hanging out with assholes. Like yeah, totally. That's the kind of thing. It's true that like learning to deal with difficult people is a part of life. Certainly, like at work. You don't get to choose who you interact with. And in all, all sorts of other contexts, you sometimes have to deal with people who you don't enjoy. But in the context of a recreational weekend, you would like actively try to avoid spending that time with assholes, right? <laughs> and, and, and forcing your kids to do that, to spend an entire recreational weekend with three assholes, that seems unkind to your kids. Um, Maybe a weekend is too much to ask, but maybe you could ask them to do a Sunday afternoon barbecue or whatever. Maybe there's something else so you can get to see your friends and you don't have to, like, tell them what jerks their kids are. But at the same time, you don't have to, like, really screw over your kid to that extent. Um, but it seems to me that, like, you know, I love going away for the weekend with friends as well. I would be sad if I couldn't do it because their kids were assholes. But if that's the case, then I think you have to have a little bit of compassion for your own kids and and not impose that on them. It just seems like too much. Yeah, and sometimes it's just chemistry, you know? Sometimes it's just kids... Um, they might be a handful, but it really is just the way they are when they're with your kids. Like, sometimes kids just have bad chemistry together. Like, I can make the strong case that this kid, that Teddy uh, has this adversarial thing, I can make a strong case that they're actually quite a bit alike, and they just bring out the worst in each other, <laughs> like in the same way that adults sometimes do, you Those know? Those are the ones, though, where, <laughs> like, if you wanted to, too, you could make a case that it might be good for Teddy to like work through this difficult relationship with this other kid who is very much like him and they have a difficult relationship and they have these interpersonal problems and maybe they can like over the course of time, maybe there's something good for him in like learning to work that out. And maybe there isn't, but you could at least make that case. <laughs> it's when the other kids are really just jerks that yep. you can't make any case that there's any benefit from it. Right, right. Or when the whole weekend becomes about managing this kid thing. And yeah, it no right. Is then fun, nobody's which is, having it, it sounds fun. like it's not fun, right? No, not like fun. why? Why it's, you can't call it a good time anymore when you're dealing with your kids so much that it's no longer a good time. So find some other way to have a good time. I think that's right. Um, we have some recommendations coming up. I have a recommendation for how uh, you might have a good time without forcing your kid to hang out with assholes. Do you have a recommendation that would meet that need, or should I go first? 
You should go first. I'm, I'm dying to hear your recommendation. I'm going to go first. My recommendation, and it comes from this past weekend, is I recommend you get your hands on a copy of the out-of-print Milton Bradley game, Pretty Pretty Princess, and <laughs> you make your father-in-law play it with his granddaughter. Because if he is a doting grandfather and wants to indulge his six-year-old granddaughter, he will be very happy to play Pretty Pretty Princess and uh, adorn himself with colors of uh, plastic jewelry selected by spinning a kind of dial. Um, and uh, we'll win or lose, depending entirely on the whims of chance. Um, but it will be fun for you to watch your father-in-law playing Pretty Pretty Princess with a six-year-old girl. That's my recommendation. What's yours? That's really good. Along those same lines, Kevin uh, played the no longer manufactured, um, it was not a game, it's like an activity, fashion plates at a friend's house with oh, their daughter. Oh, Eliza loves those. You can still get those. A few months ago. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, and it was so fun to watch him like design these outfits with this little girl. And um, I don't know, I thought, I thought it was really, really sweet and fun. And turns out he's a really decent fashion plate fashion designer. Who knew? Kevin has hidden talents. But um, that's a great recommendation. Mine, mine is a little bit broader. I've been doing a little bit more travel for work lately than I ever have before. And in the last week, I've had to take two trips, one to D.C. and one to New York, which has kind of sucked, except on the D.C. trip, um, I ended up flying down my older son to spend part of it in D.C. with me. And I already had the hotel room. He was able to go look at a couple colleges and just sort of wander around the city. And, you know, D.C. is like a very walkable, navigable place. He did a little bit of sightseeing. He went and had some lunch somewhere. And had some kind of teen adventures. And then he actually attended a couple of sessions of the conference I was attending with me because he thought they were, the topic sounded interesting. And it was just really fun to have my son on this work trip with me, which isn't something I ever would have thought to do before, before this whole like college visit thing started where, you know, trying to take advantage of being in certain locations so he can check out schools. Like, so consider, seriously, if, if you're traveling for work and it's doable and, you know, you could fly your kid down for 99 bucks to go with you or whatever, like, consider bringing your older kid with you on a work trip because I think he got a lot more out of it than just visiting a couple of colleges and bopping around the city. Like, he actually went to a journalism conference and talked to journalists and uh, really seemed to enjoy that. And it gave him some exposure to my profession. It gave him some exposure to other people who do different things, print reporters, uh, video reporters. Um, we went to a session by Amy Webb, the futurist. So he got to sort of like have this whole talk about the future of technology and journalism converging. And he just really found it very, very interesting in a way that I didn't expect. I thought he was just going to be, you know, kicking around the city on his own for the week. But he actually... It was like bring your son to work day, and it was really, really fun. So I recommend it. If it's doable, give it a shot. And um, if it doesn't go well, you can just email me and um, blame me. That's totally cool. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. I recommend emailing Rebecca very angrily. Uh, you can do that at <laughs> mom and dad are fighting at slate.com. Make sure to put um, up yours, Rebecca, in the subject line so we know <laughs> what it's about. Terrible idea, Rebecca. Terrible. And that's our show. Uh, if you have a question that you would like us to tackle, give us a call at 424-255-7833. Let us know what you thought of the show on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad. This show is produced by Benjamin Frisch. Carvel Wallace will be back next week. For Rebecca Lavoie, I'm Gabriel Roth. We'll see you next time on Mom and Dad are Fighting.